Hi everyone, my name is Ellis Maxwell, I'm editor of Beyond Prisons, and I'm here to share a quick call for art and article submissions from our comrades at the Certain Days Collective. If you're not familiar, they produce the Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners calendar. It's a joint fundraising and educational project between outside organizers in Montreal, New York, and Baltimore, as well as current and former political prisoners. All proceeds from the calendar go to abolitionist organizations working for a better world. The Certain Days Collective will be releasing their 22nd calendar this coming fall and are doing an open call for abolition-related art and article submissions to feature within it. This calendar hangs in more than 6,000 homes, workplaces, prison cells, and community spaces around the world, and the Collective is encouraging contributors to submit both new and existing work and especially seek submissions from people in prisons and jails. The deadline for submissions is June 14, 2022, and you can read the submission guidelines and more at their website, certaindays.org. We were also fortunate enough to have the folks from the Certain Days Collective on the show back in 2020, and we encourage you to go listen to that conversation as well to learn more about their work. Thanks so much. Hello, and welcome back to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and the abolition movement. Thank you for listening. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Namsanstein. Before I get into this episode, I wanted to say a word about our show. It's independent, ad, and paywall-free, and 100% supported by listeners like you. We would like to continue and expand upon the work that we've been doing on this show since 2017. So if you can chip in a few dollars a month or make a one-time donation, please join us at beyond-prisons.com slash donate. If you can't, but you still want to help out, please help us spread the word and rate, review, subscribe, wherever you listen. It really helps. All right, Kim and I are super excited about this episode because it's the first part of a series we're working on over the coming year or so with the folks behind the Creative Interventions Toolkit, a practical guide to stop interpersonal violence. As they write on their website, quote, Creative Interventions provides vision, tools, and resources to help anyone and everyone create community-based, collective responses to domestic, family, and sexual violence. The community-based approach centers those closest to and most impacted by harm, honors their expertise, and builds collective knowledge and power as the solution to violence. In each episode in this series, we're going to go through a different section of the toolkit and speak with some of the dozens of organizers whose work in fighting interpersonal violence without the police over the last few decades has provided the vital source material behind this document. The CI toolkit has been around for a while now, but AK Press released it in print for the first time last December. So while we've talked about the toolkit in previous episodes of the show, we wanted to use this occasion to spend more time with it in the hopes of spreading some of the tools, frameworks, skills, strategies, and roles in ending interpersonal violence that come out of this movement. We're starting this series off with a conversation with Mimi Kim and Rachel Herzing, setting the stage by talking about where the CI toolkit came from, how it's structured, and how it proposes intervening in violence, and importantly, how its community-centered approach differs from others. Mimi Kim is the founder of Creative Interventions and a co-founder of Insight. She's been a longtime activist, advocate, and researcher challenging gender-based violence at its intersection with state violence and creating community accountability, transformative justice, and other community-based alternatives to criminalization. 
As a second-generation Korean-American, she locates her political work in global solidarity with feminist, anti-imperialist struggles, seeking not only the end of oppression, but the creation of liberation here and now. Her recent publications include 2020's The Carceral Creep and 2018's From Carceral Feminism to Transformative Justice. She's currently working on a restorative justice pilot project addressing domestic and sexual violence in Contra Costa County, California. Rachel Herzing has been an organizer, activist, and advocate fighting the violence of surveillance, policing, and imprisonment since the 1990s. Rachel was the director of research and training at Creative Interventions. She was also the executive director of the Center for Political Education, a resource for political organizations on the left, progressive social movements, the working class, and people of color, and a co-director of Critical Resistance, a national organization dedicated to abolishing the prison industrial complex. All right, that's it for now. You can find links to the CI website and toolkit, as well as other resources in the episode notes. Thank you for listening, and here's our conversation. Well, thank you both for uh, being here and for doing this project with us and, and sharing the work of the Creative Interventions Toolkit. Um, Kim and I have used this toolkit and turned to it and talked about it many times over the years. I think it's come up in certain episodes that we've done, um, including the episode that we did with you previously, Rachel. Um, and I was so excited to see that it was being re-released in print. Um, and so we, you know, we wanted to get together with you two and, and, uh, and talk about it and share the work with everybody. Um, so I guess to kick us off, there's kind of, uh, the first question is kind of a two-part question. I, I want uh, you to talk about what is the Creative Interventions Toolkit? Like if you were to describe it to somebody, what is it? And then I would love if you could share with people sort of its lineage, its roots, like where does it come from? who was involved in making it and like, what is the source material um, that went into building this toolkit? Um, I can go ahead and start. Um, and Rachel just bust in whenever you want. Uh, you were there from the beginning. So, um, well, when you ask what is the, the creative interventions toolkit, I have to first respond with what we have been lovingly calling it, which is, no, it's not a toolkit, it's a tool shed. Um, I know that I first imagined this was going to be a small set of flashcards, and it has turned into something that some people now call the Bible. And why is that? It's because it's so long. If anybody's seen it or or uh, held it in their hands, it's um, it's pretty hefty. It's almost 600 pages long. And um, the reason it got to be so long was that we really used it as a way to document pretty much everything we had thought that we learned over the two, three, four years that we were um, uh, really trying out what it meant to do community-based interventions to violence, which we called it then. We didn't call it necessarily community accountability. We didn't use the words transformative justice at the time, even though those words were around. We really um, wanted to use a simple language and language that didn't flourish it and make it anything, you know, bigger than than it was. Which was it was an experiment to really try to see what it meant to um, deal with the harms of domestic violence, sexual violence, and other types of inter interpersonal violence. 
um, using the kinds of principles that we now associate with transformative justice and um, abolition, which is that it would be um, collective, that it would be um, looking at our kind of principles of social justice and liberation, that we would not be using punishment, we would not be using systems um, of uh, policing, of uh, and really of punitive measures altogether, that we had seen that a lot of us had been adopting um, just in our hearts and minds um, in the movement as well. And uh, that we really also have this belief, this deep, deep belief in transformation of all people, um, no matter what harms they had committed. Um, we knew this deep in our hearts and minds. We knew this from our own personal experiences. And we knew this from our political spaces. So, um, you know, we, we tried this out. And we learned a lot of things. And a lot of what we learned was this, this is complicated and everybody's situation is very different. And that we're talking about folks hurting each other. Uh, we're talking about lethality. And so we couldn't be casual in the kinds of um, things that we really recommended that people would do. It's much more based upon, I think, questions to explore than answers. Um, because we knew that every single situation called upon specific answers that made sense in that context and with those people and with those dynamics um, and sets of possibilities. So I'm just going to start off with that, but Rachel, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I would just echo a lot of what you've said, Mimi, so I won't repeat it. I think where you and I might differ slightly is that I'm not at all ever embarrassed or ashamed. I don't think you're embarrassed or you, you didn't describe being embarrassed, but you frequently will say, oh, it's super long. You'll lead with how long it is. And I just am like, yeah, that's how long it is because before all the reasons you just described because that's what re what's required by it. And I don't think people should be intimidated by that. I also think that it's long because many things repeat in the kit or not in the kit, you know, in the, in the document over time. Um, so you might see the same section multiple times because we want people to, we think they're really, really important, those sections, which is why they show up multiple times. So you don't have the option of just skipping it the first time and ignoring it. The other thing I think I would say about it is that it's a starting place. Um, as Mimi just said, I think it offers many more questions probably than answers for all the reasons that Mimi described. And I think, you know, people may describe it as the Bible because of the size of it. It looks a little bit like a phone book to me, honestly, as I'm sitting next to it here. Um, but I would not treat it as a Bible, as in doctrine, or as something that you can follow and get the answers out of, because I think it is more suggestive of places that you could go, questions you could ask, things that you could inquire after, than it is, um, you know, like, X, Y, and Z, follow this blueprint. I will say from my own experience that it does not do that, but it gives you a very, very good place to start. I wonder, Mimi, if you want to talk a little bit about the history of it, how it came together. Yeah, that would be great. Well, I could answer that a couple of different ways. I mean, one is the history of how creative interventions came together, which, um, you know, has a long story, I, I think more immediately, it really came out of, um, from, from me, uh, many years of uh, 
working in um, the feminist anti-violence movement, working in uh, crisis lines, um, shelter, and so on, and and really seeing the limitations of the of what we now know as carceral feminism. Um, uh, I think more immediately in terms of that the timing we started in 2004 was that in in uh, 1998, we had Critical Resistance um, come together, and Rachel can obviously talk more to that and was a big part of that happening. And Insight, um, which is an organization that was very much kind of my political home for so many years, um, that started in 2000. And that was really the coming together of, uh, of a lot of different um, social movement forces, uh, a lot of leadership um, by... Uh, uh, people of color, by um, queer people of color, by trans people of color that who came together and just said, we we care about violence, but we cannot rely on the state um, for the solutions to violence. And particularly, I, I can say in terms of the anti-violence movement that um, I uh, was much more associated with, uh, Inside came together with uh, uh, a bunch of um, people, some of whom I've known for a long time at that time, um, some of that were new to me, uh, all from communities of color that really said we, as uh, really a travesty that we've been not only relying on, on law enforcement as one of our kind of dominant strategies to seek safety, but we've actually been doing that in such a way that while, well, you know, Violence Against Women Act was part of the uh, crime bill of 1994, um, the entire anti-violence movement seemed to be just closing um, their eyes to the kinds of uh, collaborations um, and collusions that we had been participating in for really decades at that point. So that's kind of the more of the, the political story leading up to this kind of call for um, what we now I think know more familiar as abolitionist polit feminist politics. And that's really demand for us to not only practice um, uh, liberation um, and end to violence, but really rooted in principles of liberation. Um, and to do this in our institutions, but also in our everyday practices. And what does that look like, uh, given the fact that so many of us um, not only experienced um, violence as, as children, um, but have historical legacies of interpersonal violence, but also state violence. Um, how many of us were still involved in uh, just everyday situations of violence, many of which we as social justice movements were dealing with very poorly and really continue to deal with poorly. Um, so uh, that was kind of the, the political context in which I think there was this kind of new movement um, or uh, a, a lot of energy that we still see today um, where people came together and said, we absolutely need to create a politics that is different. And we also need to look at ourselves and create practices that are different. So um, creative interventions came out of this kind of political context where there was um, a rejuvenation of energies to, um, to create a new politic, to do this collectively, um, to do this across a lot of different sectors, and to also bring this home, to bring this into our everyday practices. And um, I, uh, yeah, I went out 
searching for these different kinds of alternatives, um, thinking that I was going to find a, a lot of things, and I really found very little. Uh, we had some kind of um, uh, some samples and some examples in the landless labor movement in Brazil. We had I had I we were hearing about restorative justice in different kinds of First Nation communities, but there were there was really uh, not very much there that was developed. So I felt a responsibility to um, not only uh, be par participating in this critique, but also to participate in coming up with some of these uh, solutions. And, you know, what people now say is like building the world that we want to live in. Um, so creative interventions, I, I did see as kind of a temporary, um, but uh, important move at that point, given who I was, given the kind of skills I had, given the people I know, um, given my home in the Bay Area, that where uh, a lot of different people were really thinking about these things as well, and kind of looked around to see who's, who's in this, who's interested, and really had a coming together of some of the people that you see, um, many, a listing of many, many individuals and really many organizations um, that you see in the kind of the preface of, of the toolkit. Um, there was Generation 5 was starting to do work in the Bay Area. Philly Stands Up was doing work in Philadelphia. Um, Chicago had all kinds of um, folks that were doing emergent practices. Project NIA was one of them um, with Marion Kaba. Um, uh, YWEP, Young Women's Empowerment Project with Shira Hassan and, and all of the people there that we were really in partnership around that time, it was around 2004 and saying, hey, we're gonna try this, what are you doing? And um, and we all turned to each other as community while also um, looking locally to see what we could um, generate and produce. Uh, creative interventions was an idea that I had, but in formation with a lot of other people that have been talking about this, I happened to run into Rachel at, um, an event and for some reason, uh, just hearing you talk, Rachel, made me really wanna reach out and ask you if you might wanna be part of this project. And um, I was so thrilled that you actually said yes. Um, and people just came together in that way uh, that we were kind of looking for each other in some way. And there was this kind of energetic alignment that happened. Um, our first office was right downstairs from Critical resistance um, in downtown Oakland, and um, all of these other people were starting to do this work, and we were in conversation with them uh, locally, but also across the country. So we wanted to do something that was fairly pragmatic in terms of two projects, and one was how can we actually start trying this work? What does it really look like to address harm as it comes up? How do we do it in a way that um, have those principles that I was talking about that are that's collective, um, that's based on uh, belief in transformation, that understands that violence is rooted in um, systems of oppression, um, that we were really going to be much more open-ended in what we thought were possibilities and to ask people, what, what do you want? Sometimes people didn't know, but they had never actually been asked that question before. So out of that came, um, uh, you know, we had principles that we started out with and we had practices that really developed out of that and that the results of the kinds of learnings we had across a lot of different situations are the things that we ended up really thinking about 
analyzing a little bit more and documenting in what you now see as the toolkit. If I can add just one thing, I'm sure you're anxious to, to jump in here, but um, oh, or I'm going to add two things. I said one thing, but I'm going to actually add two. <laughs> you can add three if you need to. Classic stylings on my part. Um, so one is that I just need to acknowledge that I had no part in the 1998 conference, Critical Resistance Beyond the Prison Industrial Complex, and the people who did work on that deserve all of the credit, and I deserve none of it. Um, and I also just want to acknowledge um, what I think is implied in something that you were talking about, Mimi, which is this document that Insight and Critical Resistance worked on together, which we just kind of call the Insight Critical Resistance Statement. It has an actual title, but I never remember what it is, something about interpersonal violence. But I think that there was a coming together early on in the um, development of both of those organizations to say, hey, prison industrial complex abolitionists, you're not paying close enough attention to the fact that in your quest to eliminate the violence of policing, you're not taking seriously enough interpersonal harm that actually does happen between people. And critical resistance saying, hey, Insight, we are completely down for the elimination of interpersonal violence. And we want you to come with us um, to proclaim widely that cops and imprisonment are not the answer to that. And I would say, uh, I would say critical resistance did not do nearly as well in leveraging that statement as Insight. Insight, I think, did a really, really good job of, of leveraging that um, document for work out in communities and among other organizations. And the other document that I want to acknowledge that I think gets to some of what you were describing, Mimi, around some of the movement challenges that we were facing in that period is The Revolution Starts at Home, which was a zine um, and eventually became a book. But in the period that Mimi's describing, emerged as a zine that really took to task our movement organizations and how we were kind of just not dealing with the real violence that was happening within them. Thank you both so much for that. That's incredible. And I mean, you know, the late 90s and early 2000s are an incredible uh, time for this movement work. And, and it's just so amazing to hear, uh, you know, how much of this came out of that and, and sort of a recounting of it. And I wanted to hone in, you know, in terms of the principles that uh, this was built around. I wanted to hone in on one that you mentioned, Mimi, and maybe ask you to speak a little bit more about it. Um, and that would be the specifically like the community-based approach here, or the the view of this as a community accountability process. Can you explain like the intention there and what that is, and and maybe like how it differs from other models um, of violence intervention? Um, what do you mean by like a community-based approach? Well, I think for me, having come out of the um, anti-violence um, movement or field or whatever we want to call it, um, that a lot of it was um, in juxtaposition to what I saw there, which was you know service-driven, very individualized, um, case management-oriented, uh, all-around separation of people, and basically thinking that the intervention doesn't happen at home. The intervention happens in an office, the intervention happens with professionals, with providers, uh, the intervention happens with the police. And um, I think there was this, uh, for me, really a profound um, um, realization that 
inventions happen where the violence happens. That is in homes, in streets, in communities where people live, um, with their friends and their family members, those people usually reach out to first. Um, sometimes in ways that are a little bit um, uh, subtle, um, people don't always uh, talk uh, very explicitly about violence or ask explicitly for help. It often happens in ways that are um, that are much more um, uh, secretive, let's say, or uh, testing people to make sure that they actually will give a, a response that will be helpful. But this is these are the places where people turn to for their interventions to violence. But we've created this whole kind of industry in which that's not where you're supposed to go to for your support. You're supposed to, in fact, um, I know within the uh, feminist anti-violence movement, there's this idea that that's not only where violence happens, but community members are the least to be trusted. They're the ones that are um, that are steeped in patriarchy. Um, they don't know what they're doing. They're the ones that are actually uh, creating the conditions that make violence um, even more extreme. And, and not to say that that isn't true in certain cases and in certain ways, but there are also the places where people turn to for help and places where, uh, frankly, the people do get help and support. And that we really, what we really need to do was not to just yank people away from those places, the, uh, the places where they find nurturance, the places they don't want to leave, the places where friends and family are, but rather that we really need to um, turn to those spaces and places and people and help to support and equip folks that really are not just them, but really are us as well. We're all steeped in community. I'm steeped in community that has been very much affected by violence. Um, and I myself needed support to figure out how I could um, get help when I've needed help or uh, support others to um, so that I could provide that kind of support not only as an individual or as a rescuer, but as somebody part of a community. That everything we were doing in sort of this industry of anti-violence prevention intervention was against those ideas. So um, it was very much uh, towards looking at the community, um, community spaces and places as um, the resources for violence prevention and intervention as those people that are most equipped to be agents of change, those people that really understand intimately what the dynamics of violence are, they know um, what people care about and what could possibly make them change if only we would ask ourselves those questions. Um, they're the places that could create those strengthened systems so that there could be that kind of social change, um, social norm change everybody was talking about where, um, people might already have some of those kinds of principles and practices that we as an industry were completely dismissing as, um, as kind of almost like primitive or something that couldn't be trusted, um, something we had to move away from in uh, Western, you know, notions of Western progress, uh, things that we were exporting to other places say, oh, you shouldn't use those either. And it really was uh, enraging when I, I thought about it, um, that we were actually taking the power away from people to act, to actually um, be agents of their own uh, liberation. And not surprising, um, since that is the, the way that we're organized as a society in this capitalist society. But um, I, I think it just, 
increasingly uh, became clear to me that in staying in um, an anti-violence movement, which I also have a lot of respect for, I was also participating in that kind of framework and those kinds of practices that took away from the community rather than adding to the community. Um, I was involved in uh, starting a lot of different projects in the Korean community, for example, um, where I saw what it was to actually turn to your community and really question, um, you know, bring awareness of violence, question our kinds of norms that contributed to it and started changing those. I saw that happen over and over again and I knew that we could go deeper. Um, so that's that's a lot of where the, the notion of community base comes from. And I also have my own um, personal story that I have been given permission to share share, which is that I had a very good friend. Um, I was uh, close to her. I was close to actually her partner. I was close to her children. And um, I learned later on that their relationship was domestic violence relationship. Um, and I was friends with the person who caused harm. And yet all my training as somebody working in a shelter for so many years or crisis lines for so many years was not to turn to him and, and think about what I might do to actually um, not only confront him, but offer support. Uh, but that everything I had as a resource was, were things that they didn't want. Um, my friend did not want to go to shelter. She uh, did not want to turn to crisis lines. She did not want to call the police. And so um, it was so clear. I, I, I already realized at the time, but it became very, very clear at that moment. Um, how bereft we were of any kind of community-based responses to violence that would have been what, what she was looking for. And I, what I, as somebody who was a supporter and a help, you know, a potential person who could help, and as a friend who felt really deeply impacted by this violence, that I also needed support to know what I could do. And um, I think I was just sort of thinking up, uh, dreaming of creative interventions at the time, but what struck me then was uh, thinking about what I needed, what I needed as a support person. And what I needed was a space to go to where I could talk about what was going on, where I could uh, be supported to think through some of the strategies, where I could bring people that were friends. So we did have friends who I felt like could have been part of a collective response. I myself knew that I didn't feel comfortable doing it on my own. Um, all of the things that we really ended up doing and providing in creative interventions and kind of in this approach that we're that we're trying to promote um, were the things that I needed at the time and that I did not have at all in my life. There, that space simply did not exist. And that, it seems so simple and yet so far away from what we had available. So uh, I, I know that's not kind of a more concrete story as to um, the origins and the inspiration mm -hmm. for creative interventions and ultimately to the toolkit. I think, you know, there's a, there's a couple ways to look at this in light of what you just said, Mamie, you know, I think you could look at it as a set of tools that you can access, you know, in a time of crisis to try to guide, you know, different paths forward, or even just, you know, like we, like we might talk about later in this episode, how to get the information and have a foundation for how to approach this stuff. But I also think it's, sort of a way um, to, to think about the kinds of skills and relationships that we need even prior to those moments 
um, in order to be in community with folks and intervene, right? Like, I feel like we've talked in the past on the show about pod mapping, for example, in the Bay Area Transformative Justice Coalition. And, and you know, just like getting a sense of who is in your community that you can turn to uh, when you've been harmed or when you've harmed someone else or, um, you know, when harm is happening, uh, you know, in in sort of the group of people that you're connected to. Um, so, so yeah, I, that, that's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. I am sitting here taking notes. Um, I mean, I know we have the episode, but, uh, there are always gems, um, that I get from, uh, from Mimi and Rachel. So thank you for that. Um, I wanted to follow up with, uh, something, you know, we talk a lot about accountability. We hear the term accountability all over the place. And I think that, um, how, how we understand accountability or how it's discussed in the context of the um, of this document in particular is an important thing for us to you know to explore to talk about and um, how do we understand this uh, and the orientation of this process towards people who have harmed uh, and who have been harmed. You know, I think one of the other things that I would throw into that mix that you just gave us is that I think the notion of accountability has also evolved a bit since we began work on the toolkit. Um, and there's a lot of opinions out there right now about what accountability looks like, what accountability processes are, et cetera. I, I guess I would start maybe by saying a couple things. One is that um, this is a model that presumes that engaging the person or the people doing harm is important. And I don't think that it minimizes how difficult it is to engage that person or those people, but it does elevate that as one of the things that's really important to the model working well. Um, and I think we could talk endlessly about the challenges of that. And then I think the other thing that it does is it, um, talks about the variety of roles that people might play in helping that person who person or people who did harm into a place where they are ready to be accountable or to engage in actions that might demonstrate their accountability. Um, that is slightly different from some of the other models out there. I don't think about this model as survivor-centered I believe that the language that we use is survivor informed. And the reason that that's on my mind is that that's, I know, a challenge for many people. Um, there are a lot of people who really take issue with the fact that it's not survivor centered or that in here, you know, there's even language, minimal language, I would say, but some language about the survivor not being, have, needing to be responsible for driving the whole process, but also what to do if you know, the intervention teams might disagree with the things that the survivor is saying that they want. And where is the space for advocacy and negotiation there? Um, and in terms of accountability, I think it doesn't articulate kind of an on and off switch the way that a lot of um, other responses do, right? So either you are accountable and we lock you in a cage or you're accountable and you are banished from the community or you're accountable and you can never have any contact with anybody you care about again or nothing, 
right, is the kind of ethic out there. If you are not banished or put in a cage or really, really constricted in some way, then you're not being held accountable. And it's interesting, I did a workshop just today on basics of prison industrial complex abolition, and somebody was saying, oh, you know, I always kind of mixed up punishment and accountability and coercion. And I said, I would add consequences to that mix because I think we don't talk enough about the distinction between punishment and consequences. And I think this model elevates the fact that, you know, you may not get everything that you want if you continue to do harm, but that's not the same as locking you in a cage or cutting you off from your community entirely. And I think that that's a very important distinction between this model and some other models. The other point that I want to make about that is that not only is that distinct from other models, but I think it also um, puts, as I think Mimi was starting to get at earlier, it puts the onus on all of us, right? So it's not just kind of the immediate person who did harm and the immediate person doing harm, but what as a broader community is our obligation to ensure that the conditions that we live in do not cultivate harm? What is our obligation as people who might be in relationship to these people who are engaged in this situation to um, not only cultivate different conditions, but to be available to transform the current conditions that they're experiencing? So I guess that's where I would start, but Mimi, I'm really curious about what you think. I, I think the trouble with a lot of this is that the English language is really um, in so many ways incapable, at least at this moment, to really capture some of the nuances of the ideas that we have um, or that uh, our, our thoughts about what certain words mean are so um, kind of entrapped in these old notions that sometimes it, it I, I think what you were getting at, Kim, is it, it takes actually looking at something that has something more spelled out because what you would go to in your mind maybe something that's very simplified and very flat and very inaccurate. So I think that with accountability, um, that just that word itself, uh, I think, triggers so many different kinds of thoughts, feelings, um, vis visuals, um, uh, and that there's been a lot of resistance to even the word accountability. Some people say things like getting things right or getting right, doing right, um, responsibility, and even those words um, will not work for many, many people. So uh, accountability itself is uh, still a very vexed term. Um, and I think that it's good when we have time to actually take that word and break it down immediately so that people don't have that kind of immediate reaction to it. And you know, those reactions can be from A to Z. Um, I think one of the things that um, we realized as we were thinking more about what we had done in our work um, and unpacked this more was that accountability was not a thing or a, 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 a fixed space or place or set of behaviors. It really was a process and it is a process. And I think that we tried to capture that. And, you know, this is now a while ago. And I, I agree that people have come up with much better um, discussions about these ideas, but the idea that it's a process as opposed to a place. And that um, what we have is a different kind of steps along the way to think about accountability. One is just to actually stop doing the violence. 
And sometimes that happened out of things that were looked more like pressure, um, fear, even fear, uh, even fear of losing a relationship because you realize that you did something that you didn't quite understand and maybe weren't um, willing to take into full account, but that you had some understanding that you need to to stop doing something or reducing that if you were to um, keep the kinds of relationships that, that you want in your life. We had an understanding that there were certain things that might be done without the full kind of transformation that we all hope for, but that might be um, taking steps, steps that could take, could go forward and could easily go backwards because that is the way that at least human beings in our um our experience, um, I'm not saying this is human nature, but I am saying that these are the ways in which many of us react and behave. And that is for any of us, because any of us have done, have created harm, have done harm, have done wrong, have violated people. I think that's something else that's different and certainly different than my own training where I had come from a very um, kind of uh, binary world of there's good survivors and there's bad perpetrators. And many times we thought of that as, as a binary based upon gender. There are good female uh, uh, women, girl survivors, and there are bad uh, men, male, uh, boy uh, perpetrators of harm. And um, that we really had to shift this notion of accountability to understand that any of us are capable of doing harm. That's not to take away from the fact that there, there are uh, some people in certain situations that are more responsible for change and for harm and taking account than others. But that we, have, if we look overall at the notion of accountability, that is something that we should all um, be ready to do. And it's something that we all resist. And I, I, so I think this is the other thing is that we realize that as people were trying to think of doing you know, taking things into our own hands, doing things that we now call transformative justice, is that there was sometimes this expectation that somebody who had caused harm um, in a cer certain situation should take account for that harm immediately. And we were very much in kind of this uh, creation of a list of demands and so on, where if people didn't meet those demands immediately, that meant that they were never going to take accountability, that they were always guilty, they, they would never change. And that we really had to realize that we weren't in a world right now where people would find that accountability was something that was appealing. That accountability was very much associated with being locked up um, uh, and, you know, at best being blamed or being uh, you know, banned, kicked out of something. Um, uh, made to feel uh, shameful uh, forever, um, something that you would carry with you forever, and that um, we really need to, uh, we needed a societal shift out of that, but we also needed a practice shift out of that if we were looking at particular situations of violence. And that we had to see this as a process that had to be held collectively and with some care and compassion. Does that mean that every single person that's involved in a situation of transformation or what, you know, intervention, if we want to call it that, has to feel great love uh, and uh, compassion for the person who caused harm? Uh, no. Did it mean that overall that that collective had to be committed to that and that we needed at least some people who, who 
could genuinely feel that, yes. And so I think we get confused with this kind of idea that we all have to be the same way. Um, I think the beauty of a collective is that we look to see what we uh, can create as a group that is committed to certain principles, but that we all play different roles and we may all be able to hold feelings. We may not all be able to hold the same feelings or the same role, and that's fine. Um, what we need to do is create processes for accountability that are supportive. I think we shifted away from this idea of holding someone accountable um, as if uh, there, there were course of measures that could force somebody to have feelings of remorse and change, but rather that we have to create conditions um, and processes that could hold the possibility for that to happen, to create many opportunities for people to actually feel that accountability was in their interest and not simply that something that was going to be forced, otherwise that you would face a punishment. It's hard for us to, um, even as I think transformative justice people, to make that shift. It's really hard for us to, to imagine what that looks like because our examples um, are, are so few um, that the, everything about accountability that we're taught and trained to, to think are possible are, are not that. So that's been um, a long road. I'm really thankful for the many, many different people that have contributed to our much richer, more nuanced understandings of accountability and ways to reach that. So we see this as a process in which people can, uh, over time, uh, given the opportunities, given a supportive community, to be able to come through these kind of different um, realizations where they might at first make excuses, where they might move towards taking responsibility, where they might say, well, it wasn't my intention, I didn't mean it, from understanding that uh, even things that might not have been intended may have impacts and that they had to account for that. They had to recognize that. Um, accountability can include apologies, but it cannot be reduced to apologies. Um, there are many things um, that, that can constitute uh, accountability, uh, new understandings, um, new relationships, uh, uh, perhaps uh, participation in um, actions um, that can lead to repair and to healing, not only for the person and people who have been harmed, but to oneself. Um, there's a lot more that's been being done around um, uh, Shannon Perez. Um, uh, Derby has had a lot of work that she's done around um, self-accountability uh, so I think all of these things have contributed to a much richer sense of what accountability is and what we need to do is have practices, I think, that can really be um, steeped in these kinds of notions. And it does take time. It takes patience. It takes a kind of compassion that um, sometimes we feel like we don't have energy for. But um, I think that as we do this more, and as we uh, learn more about what liberation looks like in our daily lives, that we are more and more capable of creating these conditions for accountability. Mimi, you know, something that you were just saying makes me um, also think about something that doesn't get discussed quite as often as accountability, but I feel like is really baked into this model, which is a belief in transformation of behavior, right? That um, we believe that people can change their behavior, that people do not have to just be 
perpetrators of violence in perpetuity, right? That people can, with support, with consequences, with pressure in some cases, change their behavior, not repeat their behavior. Um, and one of the things that I really appreciate about this particular model is to me, it seems a lot also like a, like it has an organizing orientation, right? That we help people set goals and then yes. we assess what is the strategy that helps them reach their goals, right? And it's not purely about, as Mimi was saying, you know, like good people and bad people, and you're gonna be contrite for having done this thing, but really what are we all contributing to transforming the conditions that made harm possible in the first place? Kind of brings me back to the original question you have, community-based, um, what's a community-based response? And I think that really, really early on, we, Characterize this as an organizing model, and not as it's not a treatment model. It's not even you know some of these uh, things that I think that a lot of people are contributing to in terms of we we didn't necessarily consider ourselves a healing based model that people might um, uh, reach uh, forms of healing uh, from their participation in an intervention like this, but they might not. Uh, is that part of their is that their goal? Is that can they be doing that somewhere else in their lives? So um, we really are organized around thinking what people um, think is possible and what they can organize with each other to make actually happen. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you Thank for you. that. Um, it just, I got to tell you, we had like 10 more questions, um, which clearly <laughs> we're not going to get to. <laughs> it's just like, um, Oh, gosh, there's so much um, that you just said. I don't need to recap ever. Uh, you know what you just said, uh, what you both just shared with us. Uh, I do want to underscore a couple of things um, because I think that not only did they resonate with me, but they really reinforce um, a lot of the the kind of work and the organizing um, that. I and a lot of other people are doing or, you know, striving to do because I feel like a lot of us are trying. Um, sometimes we're great, you know, and we succeed and many times we fail, but we keep, we keep trying, right? And that's the thing where, you know, you talked about this being a process and something that you commit to um, in the long term because it's not something where, you know, folks are going to just automatically be like, yeah, I want to be held accountable. And, you know, we can, um, we can move forward with, you know, compassion and, um, and all the things. Um, but also to pick up on the, the point that Rachel made as well about um, belief in, you know, the transformation of behavior and um, the fact that people change, right? No one is who they were. No one is who they were 10 years ago at all. <laughs> and especially when you're, you know, part of a process like this that brings in, you know, um, other other people that you are in community with, um, you are being supported, you're being held, you're being, you know, but you're also um, helping to build the thing that we all 
not we all, but many of us say that uh, that we want. Um, so I really appreciate you both sharing your wisdom and saying all of the things way, way more eloquently than I am right now. Um, words are failing me today. <laughs> it's just, it's not just now during this conversation. It's just been a struggle with words today. But I want to thank you both um, for your time, uh, for your energy, for your wisdom for this book. Um, it's a book that I've been using since I learned about it. And I am so grateful to have a hard copy now because as I was telling Brian, um, I was trying to figure out whose um, who's account I could use um, you know, on campus to, to download the thing. Um, <laughs> because it's like, it, it's massive and not massive in a bad way, but it's like, you have, you know, it's, it's rich. It's incredible. Like, yeah. it's absolutely incredible. And I don't think that, you know, folks should be intimidated by, um, by the size. It just basically, you know, you, it's not a thing that you have to, um, it's not a read from cover to cover thing. Right. Like it's just you can, you know, identify the sections and the things and, you know, um, that, that are useful. But we're going to get way deeper into the toolkit because this is just our first um, episode in what uh, we've decided is going to be a year long series where we're going to um hopefully get a chance to talk to um, both of you again at some point over the next year, where we do a deep dive into the toolkit and we uh, talk with uh, folks from, you know, the various organizations that help contribute to making this toolkit possible, as well as um, organizers and just regular folks who are, you know, using these tools um, in their in their lives. So thank you so much for that just deeply appreciate both of you, you know, not only for joining us today, but for the work that, that you've done. I think, um, you know, for me, who I, I think sort of uh, was exposed to this maybe a little bit earlier in my quote unquote, like abolition journey than others, I think what really stood out to me is, you know, kind of going back to what, what you both were saying earlier about you know, sort of like the limits of language as we have it and the lack of nuance for some of the ideas here. You know, I think uh, it's reflected in the kinds of relationships that we have, that we don't have uh, language or concepts or frameworks for thinking through a lot of these things. And so I know for me, it was just like, you know, extremely eye-opening to, you know, even if, you know, some of these words are fraught or, or have like many different meanings uh, to most people, you know, just taking the time to explore them and, and sort of having a framework to think about relationships in this way um, is just extremely powerful um, and transformative in, in itself. Um, but but yeah, I'm really excited um, to start diving into the tools in, in the subsequent episodes. Um, we will link to the toolkit and the website and all of it um, throughout. And I really, really, really encourage people to, to check this out um, and pick it up. Um, so yeah, thank thank you both. I don't know if there's any anything that uh, you want to end on, but just really appreciate your time. Well, I want to thank both of you. Um, Kim, it's great to be reconnecting with you as we've been part of Transformative Justice Community out here when you were here in LA. So this is just uh, just lovely to be able to be on this program with you. Thank you for continuing this work um, through this podcast. 
Um, and I know Brian that you reached out uh, early. I think we, I think we had a book coming soon for quite a while, and um, we finally had this out. I really, it really struck me um, when you reached out uh, the first time and and talked about this toolkit really being important to you. I, I think it's true that I I still I hear that a lot, and I still. Um, you know, I think I'll still respond. What you mean? This little six hundred page book? <laughs> uh, but uh, clearly, uh, this is the work of many, many people. It's the work of you know, really generations of people. So um, I love the opportunity to be able to have other people speak to um, different aspects of this book and their own work. And so, thank you so much for even entertaining the thought of of having this as part of your uh, year long series. I feel really honored by that. The honor is ours. Absolutely. Yeah, if I could just add quickly, um, I completely agree. I think it's really wonderful that you're taking the care with the uh, with the document to go through it somewhat methodically and dedicating multiple um, episodes to it because, you know, it's a lot, but as Mimi led out with, it's a lot because it's a lot to try to do this work. So I think that's a really... Um, wonderful illustration of kind of how how in-depth how much care needs to be taken with these kinds of processes and Mimi I just want to give you a shout Mimi is the most persistent person I have ever met bar none and there were like years and years where I was like all right Mimi let it go and to see this like hard copy book in my hands and a shout to also to our, our comrades at AK Press for publishing it but like to see this thing, the work of all of these years and your persistence in like working with designers and getting it right and getting it out and available in this way. Um, I just, I wanna give you a thousand big ups because I think it's a really, really important tool and I'm grateful for your, your persistence in that regard. Heck yeah, heck yeah, absolutely. Thank you both so much for being here today. Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonstein. Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.